everyone, welcome to another episode of In the Spotlight, the SciComm podcast brought to you by Northwest University's very own Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. We chat with graduate students and early career researchers about their work and why they do it. If you're a new listener, we're glad to have you. I highly recommend you check out our first season, where we cover topics ranging from nuclear power to bee ecologies. If you're a returning listener, we're so excited to see you again. My name is Nicholas. I'm a new co-host of the show. Emily has done incredible work on the podcast so far, and I hope only to make it better. You'll hear from her in the other episodes. But enough about me. Let's talk science. Have you ever wondered how your mind changes as you grow older? Experience more things? So have I. Today, we're joined by the wonderful Alexa Ruel. Alexa is a fourth-year student at Concordia University in Montreal in the Department of Psychology. She's tackling important questions about how the mind works and how it changes as we age. I'm beyond excited to welcome her on the show. Hi. So to start us off, the first question that we always ask on the podcast is, why science? What's your science origin story? Why did you get interested in the first place? That's a really great question to start out with. Um, I think my interest in science goes as far back as I can remember, really. Um, the earliest memory of really um, being absorbed by science and really want, wondering about everything and wanting to find answers to everything, I think I was about eight or ten. Um, and my mom showed me this really cool science experiment with lifesavers. So these minto green or winto green, something like that, these lifesavers where um, she said you go into a dark space and if you bite down on them hard enough, they'll spark. And I thought that was so cool. So the next thing I knew, I spent days and days in a closet with a mirror to see these things spark. Um, and then my interest just grew from there about everything, how things work, why they like that, how are you know, the things around us the way they are, but also how are we the way we are as human beings. Um, and that interest in science broadly slowly morphed into an interest of how the human mind works, how we go from not knowing something to knowing something, from deciding to choosing between options. Um, and that's really what led me to decision making. Well, that's such a good origin story. It's always fascinating when you see something as a child that just sparks that interest. So you've alluded a little bit to this already, but could you tell me a little bit more about this current research that you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So the current research uh, I'm invested in now is decision making across the lifespan. Um, Specifically, I'm looking at an angle, uh, looking at decision making from the angle of the mechanisms by which we make decisions. So how do we make decisions and um, how do these different mechanisms differ from one another when do we decide which mechanism to engage in and then the big big important question here for me is how does that change across the lifespan so um which strategies do children use which strategies do young adults use and then which strategies do older adults use and why does this change as we age um so from there these these specific strategies i'm alluding to here are um kind of the simpler strategy, which would be like a habitual decision, so kind of like doing whatever worked last time, or a more model-based strategy or goal-directed strategy, whereby the user or the individual is kind of considering everything they know about their options in order to then pick the option or the choice that aligns best with their goal. 
Um, so I'm focusing on those two main strategies now and trying to understand how they change across the lifespan, why, and then how can we support them as we age? Um, so how would you go about setting all these decision makings and, and, and changing their lifespans? Obviously, working with the mind is incredibly tricky and working with humans is also incredibly tricky. So how, how do you break down these complex questions? How do you decipher this, uh, this knowledge? Um, short answer is we use many different things to get at really what's happening. Um, so the first technique we use is simply like a behavioral response. So a lot of our tasks are done on the computer in the lab. Um, so you're sitting in front of a regular computer with a regular keyboard and you'll do something that kind of resembles a video game in which you have to make several decisions in order to get as many points as you can across the game. Um, and then oftentimes there'll be some variable, something that changes across the task that will make it either easier, or harder, um, harder to represent, things like that. And we want to see what choices do participants make. Um, and then from these choices, we can start figuring out what are the decision making mechanisms that led them to make that choice. So just looking at the keyboard presses, if they you know, chose option one or option two, and how many times did they do that in the sequence in which they chose between our two options. Um, but beyond that, we also look at um, brain activity. So each participant is fit with an EEG cap um, that essentially just looks at um, brain electrical signals as they do the task. Um, and given that these signals are really temporally accurate, I get a good idea of what the decision-making process was before they pressed or chose between option one and option two. Um, and in addition to that, we can even look or add on pupillometry which is essentially done with an eye tracker, which will simply track the participant's eyes. We can look at things like direction, um, but more importantly, when it comes to cognitive tasks, like in decision-making, we're looking at how much is the pupil dilating, which is a really good index of cognitive effort. Um, so by putting all these things together, we can start understanding what was the person thinking about or deciding before they made the choice that they actually did on the keyboard. That is... Very cool, very different from, I think, a lot of different, uh, very diverse research areas. So obviously you study how the mind changes over, over human lifespan, but how has this field changed over, over, the, over the history? Has the way that we've approached this problem changed as we've began to grow more, or has it kind of been a steady, steady paradigm for the past couple decades? Um, so I'd say it's changed drastically since its um, origin or birth. Um, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you really saw this big boom in terms, or this big change, I should say, in terms of how we're examining these decision-making processes. Um, and a lot of what we currently use now in terms of the methods, but also the kind of theoretical explanation behind it, um, comes from a variety of fields. So... In the last 20 or 30 years, we started turning to fields like um, economics and uh, computer science or, um, you know, people who work closely or designing and understanding AI um, to implement what we call now computational models to kind of further understanding of decision making. And this allowed us to switch over from, you know, just looking at people's responses and then having them kind of tell us why they did a certain choice or why they made a certain choice to being able to um, examine what's happening at the neural level, what's happening with their behavioral choices, and then integrate all of this in a computational model. So kind of essentially 
a series of mathematical equations that would help us understand what is likely driving these choices. What is the learning rate at which the participants are um, understanding the task and then doing either well or not so well at it. Um, so I'd say it, it's changed a lot. And one of the big things would be combining everything we've learned from other fields into furthering our understanding of decision-making. Right. So a truly interdisciplinary approach that definitely seems to be the way forward for a lot of research fields. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it continuing in that direction, hopefully, and helping us understand more about what we're studying. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously everyone has uh, an interest in, in the mind, right? What do you think about the public perception of, of your field? Are there things that you wish people would know? Are there common misconceptions that you'd like to address? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I actually recently wrote a blog post about this is one of the biggest misconceptions is that decision making and choosing is the same thing. Um, and from where I'm standing, it's definitely not right. We use the two terms interchangeably, but they don't really get at the same idea. So when you think of the difference between decision-making and choosing, think of it as the decision-making happens before choosing, right? So you would wake up in the morning and you think, okay, I have, you know, I have coffee, I have water and I have juice and you would have a goal, right? So maybe your goal is to be alert as quickly as possible, right? For your day ahead. And therefore the decision-making process begins. You're going to have to decide which beverage you're going to take that morning in order to feel alert or as alert as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, and then, so that's the decision-making process is kind of weighing the pros and cons of each one. And maybe you settle on coffee because you're like, well, that's a great stimulant. It should be best. Um, and then you make the choice and you actually reach for say the pot of coffee and pour yourself a cup. Um, so that would be the distinction here. And oftentimes I get um, responses of people saying, oh yeah, you know, I make really good choices in life or I am really good at picking things off a menu or, and it's kind of blurring the, this distinction between decision-making and choice. Um, and even one step further, I'd say there's also um, learning that gets kind of confused in there. Um, because if you already know about the three options presented to you, so you know what coffee is, how stimulating it is, you know about juice, you know about water, um, there's not much learning happening there, right? So it's just decision-making and choosing. But what I do is kind of looking at learning and decision-making and then choosing as well. So we're looking at all three together and uh, focusing on the decision-making part. So you can think of this as opposed to having coffee, water, and juice, you would have beverage X, Y, and Z. And you don't know how stimulating they are. They don't know, you don't even know if you're going to like these three things. Um, but you first have to learn about how stimulating they may be if you like the taste of it in the first place. And then you would go through the decision-making process and then you make your choice. Um, so I think that would be the, the biggest misconception is that um, a lot of people don't necessarily think of a distinction between the three terms or how they relate to one another. Um, and a lot of what I'm trying to do now is just kind of explain that um, and make sure that when I talk about my research, it's clear to everyone. Right, of course, just because the way that we behave is, is very fluid, right? So I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but the choice is, is the actionable part of, of this whole sequence, right? And the decision making is, is the internal logic behind it. Yeah, exactly. The choice is what you'll you'll see people do. So in, in kind of what we see in the lab is the keyboard press is the choice. 
but everything that happened before that is the learning and decision making. Um, so it, they all flow one into another. And I think that's why exactly like you said is why a lot of people tend to confuse the two or the three together. Right. Very fascinating. So you've mentioned this interplay between learning and decision making. Is there anything that you can tell us about, about something that you've seen in your research or, or perhaps read about in the field? Yeah. So one of the main findings that we'll see again and again is that um, learning serves a specific purpose in how, whereby learning kind of feeds into the decision-making process and guides which mechanism you're going to use or decide with. Um, so a good example of that is if you don't know about a certain situation, you don't know, say, about the beverages that are um, given to you in the morning to drink, then you would have to learn which one is most stimulating and learn which one is maybe best tasting to you. Um, so you would go through this process, you would try one, and then you would maybe try a different one if the first one wasn't so great or maybe wasn't as stimulating as you'd like it to be, and you would try a different one, et cetera, et cetera. And through this, um, this process of learning is going to guide which decision-making strategy you're going to engage in, right? So at the beginning, you're kind of much more exploratory. You're kind of creating a model, so to speak, of which beverage is best, which one is most stimulating, um, how long the effect lasts, et cetera, et cetera. But over time, you kind of switch strategies away from this exploratory or model developing strategy over to one that is much more habitual, where then, you know, in a week's time, you figured out which beverage is most stimulating, which one you like best, and you no longer need to explore. You're just going to kind of repeatedly reach for the one that you concluded was best. Um, so learning will kind of feed into decision-making in that way, but the decision-making process will change over time or the strategy you typically engage in changes over time based on what you learned. Right. So a lifetime of experience informs your decisions because you've probably already experienced it before. Exactly. Have you looked into why this happens at all? Is it some sort of, um, I don't know, cognitively easier task? Yeah, so the, the main reason, I guess, that we understand why this happens right now is that it's, it's saving on cognitive resources. So to, in order to kind of map out which one's best, what serves what purpose, which one do I like, which one is kind of more rewarding, so to speak, um, it's very cognitively effortful. Um, and now we're talking about beverages, which seems like a simple task regardless, but you can think of something where you have to compare which house you want to buy based on its location, cost, um, you know, how much of a down payment you want to place, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very cognitively demanding um, task. So over time, if you can kind of switch over from a more demanding strategy to one that's a lot less demanding, it's to your advantage, right? So if you figured out that coffee is the best stimulant, you're not going to put yourself through the effort of analyzing all your options every morning if you know that that's the best one. Um, so from my perspective, at least, it's towards trying to save on your cognitive effort to kind of minimize how much you have to engage in every time you make a decision. Right. We've all been mentally drained at the end of the day. So it makes sense to try to use the, the easier tactic, I guess, or the less resource intensive tactic, as, a, as you put it. Yeah, at least when we can, right? <laughs> Right. That's what learning's all about, I suppose. So taking this huge, hugely interesting, hugely complex area of research, what's your favorite thing about it? What's the fun fact that, uh, that you always like to share if someone asks you uh, about your field? 
Great question. Um, I think one thing that I'm starting to see in a lot of the work I'm doing is um, looking at how decision-making changes as we age, we oftentimes reach the conclusion that, well, it's, it's not, you know, we're not uphill. We're kind of going downhill as we age in terms of our decision-making abilities. But one finding that I'm, you know, seeing more and more in the research we're doing, and it's kind of surprising, is that it doesn't necessarily mean that your decision-making becomes worse. So you, you start to struggle to make decisions. You start to rely on simpler strategies, but that might actually be adaptive. So some of the work we're doing right now and have done over the last few years is actually showing that even though older adults have these cognitive limitations, um, their abilities aren't necessarily what they used to be, and that leads to a shift towards simpler strategies, which can, see, can um, be seen as something negative, they're actually shifting towards something simpler in order to perform better in the decisions they're making. So they're actually switching over to simpler strategies um, somewhat rationally, right? And it might not be something that they're aware of when they're switching over, but it's actually an adaptive switch. It's something that actually is seen as rational is to do that, is to find kind of the spot along the spectrum where you can engage in maximal effort while getting the most out of it, as opposed to trying to engage in maximal effort where you might not benefit much from that. Um, so I think that's something that's a little complex to explain, but definitely surprising as a finding is to say, well, older adults are not bad decision makers. They're just not making decisions the same way as younger adults are. So I guess you could say that over time, our minds optimize their strategies. Yes. Um, I think over time, you're, I mean, you, you definitely have this gain of experience, this, you know, increase in and what you've seen in the past, which definitely helps in the decision-making. But when faced with new complex environments, as we age, it becomes very hard to navigate through those decision-making environments successfully. Um, so that can kind of, this is kind of the downhill part I was referring to, um, but also being able to adapt to that is something I find really remarkable is to say, well, you know, they're not just stuck relying on a simpler strategy as you see this kind of adaptive or rational adaptation to how many or how um, what your resources are in terms of your cognitive abilities relative to the task at hand and what your um, goal is in performance. So there's some type of um, increase or better performance there among the downhill stuff. Right, I see. So in your, obviously you've, you've been at this and research for a few years now, what are what's your favorite thing about the research it, do, it doesn't have to be necessarily a specific fact about the field but just something that you love doing i think what i really like about the research i do is that i can come up with a really cool question or something that i'll wonder about like well why does this happen in people why does why do we see these developmental changes over time and you know i can just go ahead and test that um, given that a lot of what I do requires a computer, um, I don't necessarily need to look at the neural mechanism right away. I have this ability to kind of just dive right in. Um, and I think that's what's really cool about what I do. But I think a lot of a lot of cognitive research, a lot of research in science, you know, widely has that 
that aspect to it is, you know, the researcher comes up with a cool question. If it's backed up by previous work, there's a clear hypothesis, then you can just go ahead and test it. And it's very uh, motivating to be able to do that in your day-to-day work. Right. That freedom to just investigate whatever, whatever you're interested in is, is really, I think, one of the biggest advantages in science. Given that this research is so personal, I guess, right, to every, every human being, what do you feel about the way that you've seen it discussed in, in the news uh, or, or, or mainstream media? Um, have you seen it being discussed at all? Or would you prefer it if it was discussed more? Um, I think the latter point is probably the one that's most true for me is that it's, it's not very discussed. Um, and a lot of what I've been doing recently is I'm trying to bring this more so to the public, um, doing more outreach, kind of bringing this topic up and seeing if the public is interested in it, because I think it's definitely a topic that's applicable to everyone's day to day life. Um, and a really simple example of this is that one of our main findings recently seems to be that as we age, we have a hard time creating um, a model of the decision-making environment. So think of this model as kind of a representation of what option would lead to what secondary choice, right? So an example we've been working with, um, and this will become clear to why I'm talking about this example in a second, is um, if you're buying a ticket for a train or a bus or whatever at a self-serve ticket booth. Right. So you're presented with this first screen. It says, welcome, choose a language or, um, you know, not. And then the second screen would be like, okay, choose your type of ticket. Do you want a weekend ticket? Do you want a week ticket? Do you want a two day ticket, et cetera, et cetera. And then once you've chosen that, then you have another menu in which it's like, okay, you've chosen weekday ticket. Well, do you want like a regular day or is this a holiday ticket, et cetera. And then you eventually get to the ticket you intended to buy. Um, select that and then you're redirected to another screen to pay for the ticket and then you finally receive it. So what we're seeing in those instances is that you have to kind of have a model of how this machine works in order to navigate through it, right? Since each menu is only observable once you get there, you don't know what the next menu is going to be necessarily until you've chosen an option on the first one. And then you've got these nested menus that kind of one leads to the next. And so one of our findings is, is that Older adults, in terms of how they engage with these complex decision-making tasks, seem to have a hard time representing which menu or which option leads to which next option. And this leads to difficulties engaging with a lot of what we think is is leading to a lot of difficulties engaging with technology. So this might explain why older adults struggle to engage with ticket booths. Um, or computers. Um, So given that we're seeing this link, we're trying to bring this kind of out into the media a little bit more to see if there's an interest in the public about learning more, but also seeing if there's something we can do about this, right? If this is really what's happening in older adults and leading to these deficits, is there any future research or kind of next, a follow-up study that we can do to figure out, well, how do we help these older adults if this is really what's happening? Um, And I think this is an important issue that should be discussed more, um, given the importance of technology in our current society. That's a great answer. Um, It's always interesting to see how this fundamental science research that we do and how we can apply it to to the real world. And obviously, in in your case, that research is, uh, is almost immediately applicable. 
Yeah, for sure. At least I just at least we think so, right? And we're trying to um you know, maybe develop more collaborations or work with different companies to see if we can actually work towards something that can help solve these issues we're seeing emerge in our research. Right, of course. If someone listening to this episode were to understand or remember one thing and one thing only about your work, what is it that you'd want to put in the spotlight? I'd say the one thing I'd like everyone to remember is um, first, decision-making is complex. There's a lot to it. It's normal um, to feel kind of overwhelmed when thinking about decision-making. Um, and specifically when we're looking at this across the lifespan on the aging spectrum or from younger adulthood to older adulthood, it often seems kind of like it's all downhill, um, but there's a lot of research showing that it's not. Um, so not to kind of fear cognitive decline when it comes to decision-making, but it's actually something that we're working towards understanding more and it's not all bad. Well, that's certainly a great takeaway. Thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. This research is truly fascinating and I think really important. And I hope that everyone listening felt the same way. It was great to be on the show and I thank you all. Listeners, I also want to remind all of you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does make a difference in getting this podcast out to a wider audience. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find this podcast on Twitter at SpotlightThePod. This podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. You can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotsForceNU. Finally, a big shout out to Emily, my co-host and founder of the podcast. We wouldn't be where we are today without our hard work. I'll see you all in the next episode.